Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you in contact with what's going on here in Israel, so to make sure that you always feel connected. And we are here today uh, in another Skype episode, I'm sure you can tell already by the sound, which I think usually these work pretty well, but we have uh, four voices today. So first of all, let me say hi to uh, my co-host as always, Alan, how's it going? Well, Hashem, going well, Mike. How are you? Good. Uh, so today we're going to be dealing with some current events topics. There's a lot going on. A lot of it's frustrating, a lot of it, but hopefully it's all interesting. And we have as our third chair today, we have Benji back. Benji, we haven't seen you in a while. You there, Ben? I actually heard from him for a while to really get into the semantics of it all. That's true, too. How's it going? <laughs> Good. I'm right now in Canada. Where in Canada? Toronto. Toronto, eh? Toronto, eh? Hey, it's been quite a cold, rainy week. Well, since we're... it's kind of nice in comparison to Israel. That doesn't sound very nice at all. Well, you know, it's, it like rains for a little bit and then it gets sunny and it's like... But everyone in Canada is so nice, so it just makes up for the bad weather. All right, well, that's good. We're well, not looking forward to the bad service at restaurants again. I just got back from Poland where it was hot, muggy, and rainy. And it was and, oh, yeah. Wow. That's the only thing to complain about Poland. Okay, so you've turned into Jews Complaining About Weather, a new podcast where Kfechi, Uh So not, not that I want to cut you guys off because I was pretty riveted, but I want to introduce our fourth chair. Uh, Lior, can you tell people who you are and what you do at Jerusalem U? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Leo Krinsky. I am our Northeast Director. Um, I'm based in New York. I develop content for the organization, um, do some speaking gigs for the organization as well, and some teaching, and um, basically whatever the powers that be tell me to do. I found that lets me keep my job. That sounds very flexible. Yeah. That's my watchword, flexibility. Yeah, I don't, smart. I, I don't believe for a second. <laughs> but there's that much flexibility there. My, my my goal for this is to not create a situation where I'm going to get fired by being on this podcast. All right, there you go. Well, the good news is I don't think anybody at Jerusalem you listens to it, so I think you're safe. Okay, good. Yeah, there are there are dozens of people who listen to it, but I don't know that anybody who works with us does. So okay. what can you do? Unless, unless we have a new office in Japan. I still think those are fake downloads. We're getting dozens of downloads in Japan alone. And that must be somebody must have a VPN. There's no way that's right. Most is Israel and the States and then a few other English speaking company uh, countries and then like hundreds in Japan. I don't know how that it's got to be a VPN. We're hit. We're going on tour. You're big, big in Japan. Big in Japan. All right. Well, all, definitely big in Japan. <laughs> OK. Are we procrastinating bringing up today's topic, which is the. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. I, I think that's what I'm sensing. <laughs> which is the crashing and burning, at least for now, of the, um, of the compromise deal that was worked out for, uh, for different types of prayer to take place at the Kotel. And then I don't, I, we can decide if we think it's related or not, but we can also talk about the exclusion of Jewish stars from a pride parade in Chicago. Okay, so Alan, can you sort of get us up to date on what's going on in terms of uh, the the tensions between the Israeli government and different religious streams in the diaspora? 
Yeah, so there's two big issues that kind of came to a front this week um, in the cabinet or pushed by different factions of the cabinet. One is, as you mentioned, Michael, was the um, the egalitarian um, platform for praying, davening at the Kotel, the Western Wall. And the second was the conversion, the conversion bill. Both kind of came to a fore at the time when the Jewish Agency's general board was meeting in Israel, which gathers lots of very high-level leaders from the diaspora here in Israel. So those kind of two things converging at the same time brought a has brought at the, really the, the main media stream, at least in English in terms of Israel, has been about those two issues. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the other sub-issue of the Chicago march where um, Jewish lesbians were asked to leave because they displayed a Star of David. Um, but if we go back to the Israel one, so if we, we'll focus maybe first on the on the Kotel and the Western Wall, and then maybe if we have time, we'll talk about the conversion. But my guess is that may take the whole time. Um, so it, we'll put a map up and a picture up uh, link when, when we post this. But if you know, the, the, the Western Wall is very long. It's always fun when Alan says we'll do something on the website. Exactly. That's the royal we. See, see, Lior, I'm that's, the guy. I'm the guy. That's my, that's Whatever my anybody favorite. thinks of, Michael will do it. Go ahead. I'm directing all questions nice. to you. That's I'm it. Try to be nice. Mike, do it. <laughs> okay. The Western Wall is about how long? Like close to a kilometer, I think. Long, if I remember correctly, when I used to guide those things. And um, the main section that we know today is the Western Wall Plaza has – um, been dominated uh, by the Israeli rabbinate and um, has been turned into what one basically would say is an orthodox synagogue with a uh, very high mechitza, which has moved over the years and, and become higher over the years and more restrictive in in what um, people can do there. Uh, and so a couple of years ago... And we, we think of that as normal because it's been that way since when? Like 68? I think 67 even probably. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like that before. It wasn't before 48. The, the British and then the Ottomans before them refused to allow Jews to put any furniture, including mechitzas, benches, anything. So that's why you see the pictures before 1948 of the Kotel without um, uh, without or anything. And in fact, the 1929 Arab riots were sparked because the Jews put up a mechitza on Tishabov at the Kotel which they claimed was change of status quo. Jews are trying to take over Temple Mount, yada, 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 and then led to the 1929 riots. We know what happened there in Hebron, Sfat, Jerusalem. Um, but since 1967, as far as I know, um, you know, with Israel's sort of official line being that the religious expression, official religious expression of the Israeli government is controlled by um, the uh, the rabbinate, which is the Orthodox um, tradition. Many years ago now, actually one of my teachers um, from high school was also very involved in this, uh, started Women's of the Wall, Women of the Wall, which were essentially women, many were associated with Orthodox, but not all, who wanted a space and be able to daven in uh, at the Kotel as a as a as a Tfila group or even a minion, depending on who they were and what um, group they belonged to. They been they launched this fight, I think, in the beginning of the eighties, um, and it, it it swelled and different people supported at different points. And, and that was to have every a, a, like a different type of 
of women's prayer in the women's section? At, at Rosh, on Rosh Chodesh, they arrive every week, and the idea is that the women can read from the Torah and um, have a women's tefillah. I say tefillah because not everybody there and agreed what should be the women's tefillah. Some believe it should be a, a, a minion like a regular minion. Others believe it should be a prayer group more within liberal orthodox, uh, whatever. But the idea was that women should have certain expressions as a group with women with reading the Torah. Um, and some women wear talesim or things like that. Um, after many, many years of struggle and with other uh, movements joining in, the conservative movement, reform movement and whatnot, a couple, two years ago, I think, maybe, or a year, year or two ago, finally came a compromise for not only a women's section, but an egalitarian section of the Kotel, which would be in what we call um, the area which is near Robinson's Arch, which is the 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 southern side of the western wall and the corner that goes into the southern wall. Um, so that whole area was designated as it had been informally for years, where people could pay it, could pay to go in and have whatever kind of uh, uh, davening that they wanted. It became formalized where this was the government invested and built platforms that people could be on. And now you can go in there without having to pay money to that section to daven, the part that is the southern part of the Western Wall. Um, there are two main problems that were not solved. That, that was the compromise really um, uh, wants to solve, which is that non-Orthodox leadership will have control of the area, of that area, what happens there. Right now, the Orthodox rabbinate still has control of that area, A. And two, there would be access from the Western Wall, the, what we call the Western Wall Plaza. Right now, there's no access from the Western Wall Plaza. You have to go out the security uh, section towards the Dung Gate, and then there's a separate entrance. They want a separate entrance, so essentially someone who would come down to the Western Wall Plaza has three options. Men's section, women's section, or mixed. That's actually this kind of synagogue I grew up in. We have men, women, and mixed uh, uh, sections, and that's essentially the the idea of uh, uh, of the compromise. The compromise control over the area by non-Orthodox leadership and access from the Western Wall Plaza. So, who's that compromising with that? Why is that a compromise? On, on whose behalf is that a compromise? So who's giving into that? It's a compromise um, by the by the non-Orthodox groups. How are they compromising with that solution? Because they they feel that they're first of all they're not getting a seat at the what, what everybody defines as the Western Wall Plaza, right? They're not going to be they're not going to be able to hold services the way they want at the main what we the traditional main section of the hotel. So for them, it's a yeah. compromise to move to the southern platform. So right, they're willing exactly. to and and I, and if I understand correctly, some of the women of the wall were upset about that and weren't so, were so frustrated, but that was too much of a compromise. No, well, no. Well, it's not exactly that. So the, the, the group that now calls itself the original Women of the Wall, because that, that split, the Women of the Wall that went with that, and the group that called themselves original Women of the Wall are basically Orthodox women who said, we don't want to dominate egalitarian. <laughs> we want our space in the regular women's section to be able to do what, what we believe is the expression of our, our, our ritual. <laughs> um, so it wasn't about that. They don't want the egalitarian. So they're in a bind. So they have continued to, to, to hold their protests so they can have space there. And, and the Orthodox, how are the, the Orthodox, Orthodox compromising? So the Orthodox are compromising because they generally consider, I mean, Big Adol, 
they understand that public space in Israel, the religious expression of public space of Israel, should be defined by the Orthodox rabbinate. That they should have control of all of all expression, and this was and this was making it now into public space. It's public space. There should not be non-orthodox expression allowed. So they had agreed to this compromise. Well, the government—that's uh, a good question. Had they agreed to it? No, not really. They didn't never agreed to it. It was passed in the previous government where they did not have a seat at the table. Um, and then when the government fell and the new government had to make uh, make a new coalition, they have now forced the government to backtrack on that compromise because now they have power. Just like... Wait, I don't think that's draft, right. Just like on drafting students. What do you mean you don't think it's right? Because this compromise was signed between the prime minister's office um, with Mendelblatt mediating in January 2006 and the Haredim already been in the government. Uh, for nearly a year. It wasn't, a, as far as I understand, it was never maybe a cabinet approval. Um, I'm not sure if they've ever signed off on it. They just kind of didn't, they let it go through. I think that's what happened. Uh, Again, and they've not, been not, keeping it dormant for a year and a half. It, it's not, it's, it's not to need a vote because it's not a law. Correct. So I'm saying, so, I, I just don't think their opinion was ever, chi- they never chimed in. They never had an well, opportunity they, no, to they, say they no. They did chime in. What happened with like there? This agreement was um, they made the agreement. Um, but they were never the, a part of the agreement. The no, the ortho the ultra orthodox were a part of the agreement. The um, people the in, like the like the diaspora started celebrating. Um, the like ultra orthodox got upset about it. It was very very quiet. Then uh, this like basically blew up. BB realized he was going to lose his coalition. If this like started moving forward, like because it's in like his, a in his right, current government. Yeah. In terms of the original compromise, the only what we call ultra orthodox representation was the Kotel, uh, the Western Wall Heritage Rabbi Rabinowitz. The ultra orthodox right. parties were never a party to this compromise, and as you're saying, so for the last year and a half, Bibi hasn't done anything because his coalition would fall apart, and because of the Supreme Court, he had to actually do something to implement it. And that's why he had the cabinet decision last Sunday to say, actually, we're not going to implement this at all. Yeah, I, I do want to like say that there has been a gal, like just to be clear, like there has been state sanctioned egalitarian prayer at the hotel since 2000. Um, right. Like it's, it's not, not equally like, shared. It's not space. it's not an equally shared space um, in some regards, like you're not even able like not even able to like touch the the wall. Um, but like part of the the media explosion around this that I'm seeing at least in like regular US media is that the Israeli government is trashing the rights of women. Um, and this like the, the piece that isn't like being pulled out is that there is egalitarian prayer. But like um, Michael and Alan were saying, it's just, it's not like that level playing field. Um, so I think my my fear, at least when I'm when I'm like talking to kids about it over here, is that they think that Israel is like basically putting women to the side completely. If you want if you want to pray in an egalitarian fashion, um, and men who don't want to pray with a mechitza as well, which is like the other side of this too. Well, it kind of is putting them to the side. It's just it, I mean, it has been putting them to the side for almost twenty years. Right, but. Um, 
like basically saying like, no, not at all. You can't, you can't do it, which is how it's, how it's reading here, which is a huge problem. So how do you explain that to the students, nuance. Lear? Like, what do you tell them? Um, I mean, I think. Why is this so hard to explain to American kids? Because in America, there is, there are multiple forms of expression when it comes to how you want to express your Judaism as a religion. And of course, you're, you're dealing with issues around, I mean, there's major issues around Jewish identity in terms of, is Judaism a religion versus am I a member of the Jewish people? Um, so people, um, I think young people, especially strongly if they are affiliated, if, 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 um, they're affiliating with their denomination. And when it comes to these, like the universal values that most of our younger generations hold very near and dear, um, to be told that they have to pray in a certain way um, is like is anathema to them. Um, why is somebody Why is somebody telling me what to do? Why is somebody telling me how to express myself? Like just speaking from like a, a millennial perspective, um, why are you imposing your values on me? And why are you telling me how to pray as a Jew? Um, because there's feel, also not like a long lens of history here for a lot of That's such an American Jewish idea. Yeah. Um, that's what I see. I see this as a major crossroads between American Judaism and I don't know if I want to call it the Zionism or, you know, just the state of Israel because American Judaism doesn't really have a place in, in the state of Israel currently based on 100%. how Judaism is practiced. And so that is really the bigger issue here. Um, not the Western Wall Plaza and if there's space for people to pray how they want because A, there is, but we went in this agreement isn't working out is because what Alan said is because it was going to give autonomy to a non-Orthodox religious group and essentially give them the legitimacy in the eyes of the Israeli public, which is the mm -hmm. big fear of the ultra-Orthodox. Um, so that is really the, the bigger issue is, is there a space for an American Jewish practice um, in, within Israeli society? And we're seeing that strides are being made, but it's completely um, in the private, not in the public sphere. Um, and can an Israeli government, which requires also Orthodox parties to be in the coalition, essentially, um, agree to American Judaism as a, to be legitimately practiced in the eyes well, of I all Israelis? I would frame it slightly differently. The way, the way I see it is, I think you have a clash between, you have an ultra-Orthodox having power of a Zionist government, when the ultra-Orthodox mm -hmm. are not getting the idea of Zionism. The idea of Zionism. Well, well, why do they need to get the idea of Zionism? I'll tell you why. Because, because the idea of Zionism is Jewish nationalism. And to a certain extent, that resolves the difficulty. In other words, all Jews, part of the Jewish nation, have to have a seat at the table somehow. And public space have to be shared from all kinds of Jews. And so religious expression becomes of secondary importance to Jewish nationality. If you don't accept that paradigm shift, then, then religion itself is the thing that holds Jews together and cannot be compromised, which is what the ultra-Orthodox are stuck on, I think. So, wait, so that brings us into our second issue, um, because it confuses things that we define joining the Jewish nation through religious ritual, through conversion, which is the second thing that they want to control that, they've, that, that, that happened this week. Yeah. So, so how can you be part of the Jewish nation if you are not... How do you, how, how, what is the process of becoming part of the Jewish nation 
if it's not through a ri- religious ritual? Well, the diaspora. You know what I'm saying? If we're, we're, we're making this paradigm of Jewish nationalism, but our nationalism is, is informed also by our religious. Right. You can't take out the religion aspect of our national identity. Judaism as a religion pretty much secured our national identity for 2,000 years in diaspora. Um, so to just reject it once we have a state of our own, um, it, you know, it, it takes a big part of our identity away. Um, I don't think it's a problem that a religious conversion is the requirement to join nationality, but once again, the law of return recognizes all conversions to get Israeli citizenship. So you can join the nation without getting an ultra-Orthodox conversion. It's just when it comes to the religious identity, that is the issue. But when we're talking about the national identity, while it is a religious identity, it's not an Orthodox religious conversion that requires you to join the nation. It's an oversimplification. Yeah, because... And now so people who come here without orthodox conversion are stuck because they're we're not absolutely it's so bad you know? they're b they're b they're not really jewish they're not really jewish nationalists you know they're, they're israelis really without getting a full but, jewish identity yeah but ironically if you want to, to if you want if you are a um a convert and you want to make aliyah just on your own and you haven't married a jew um it's easier to make aliyah and prove that you're a Jew if you've converted through the Masorti movement um, or Reform Judaism because of the governments, because of the agreements in place with the government. Um, if you've converted Orthodox, it is much in the United States. It's much more challenging. Why is that? To do it as an orth- to do it as an Orthodox convert. Why? Because um, the the Rabbinut has basically been like to speak plainly, like has been screwing with the RCA here. Um, for the, the better part of a decade around which rabbis are considered from enough to perform conversions. Um, there's been a lot of internal politics. There's a lot of fears around people's conversions being rejected um, or not approved. And you can never, basically, if a rabbi is considered to have fallen off the derech, then his um, con- the con- conversions that he performed at any point are potentially invalid. So they're well, you saying, can ask and Ivanka he, Trump's rabbi who converted her. Exactly, ask like that, that's who had exactly that problem. That's like one of the like primary issues. Um, so for me, if I wanted to make aliyah like by myself, um, I would have gone under my Masorti conversion mm. because it just would have been, um, and that was like that was one of the reasons that I chose to go like in that direction because I wanted the option of aliyah by myself, not attached to. Um, like a family member. And I knew at that point when I was looking at this, like when I was making that decision, like 10 years ago, that it was going, that that was the best way for me to ensure that I would be able to make Aliyah on my own. But again, now, but that means that I'm not recognized by the Rabbinut. Right. So you're Israeli. With an, with an Orthodox conversion, I am. Right. Potentially. So, so you're saying ideally a person should get a Masorati conversion, which is like to Israeli make- conservative, and an Orthodox. Masorati to make Aliyah on the law of return, and then Orthodox to be able to get married to a Jew. Basically, yeah. Have your paperwork in order, guys. No, because if it's the Orthodox that they reject, you won't be able to marry a Jew either. Right. right. I mean, there's the chance that they're going to reject it anyway, like the Orthodox one, based on who's angry at my rabbi, like that particular day of the week. So I'm I'm sticking with my definition, which is these 
uh, what I'm going to call rabbinic Judaism. In other words, the Judaism, the practices and methods of Judaism that form to hold a people together during diaspora, including ritual conversion, uh, evolve into something that holds a people together in diaspora. What happens when those people come back to their homeland? And now some of those things which have held us together are actually being counterproductive at making Jews feel welcome and belonging. You either you, you make the paradigm shift of saying returning to the homeland is a game changer and we now have to look at these things with, uh, through a fresh lens or we say, no, no, no. If it's work, what, what's worked for 2,000 years ain't broke so we don't fix it. We hold to that system, even though in our state, it seems to be causing friction and difficulty and problems. That, I think, yeah. is the debate between Zionists and the ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's like peoplehood, right? Like, I don't know that the, the ultra-Orthodox understand truly the concept of Jewish peoplehood in this regard. Um, it's, it, it's, it's all Judaism to them is something that does not take this piece into account at all. Um, the different aspects of peoplehood, nationhood, um, the different cultures that make it up. Like it's, it's well, just not in their worldview. In their worldview. They don't care about it. It's not a fact. Yeah, it's not. Something they're not like about. people that, people that reform Jews, conservative Jews are not Jews to them. Like I hate to paint everybody with the same brush, but I've certainly had it said to my, like, had conversations where the idea is that they've like if you're a conservative Jew, you've rejected the Torah, you've rejected halacha, um, and you are you are distilling Judaism um, into nothing, and you are a threat to the state to to Israel itself. Well, why then, should a why should a person who believes that about a liberal Jew give that person a seat at the table? It's like threat number one. Well, for one thing, the you know Jewish law says they are a Jew. But again, it, it's it's what's primary is what are you defending? Are you defending the Jewish nation, or are you defending the Torah as it as I traditionally understand it? And so and so, what I what I'm trying to argue, I'm not trying to argue that everybody in the orthodox world is being well intentioned or understanding. I'm arguing that one could be a well-intentioned, understanding, ultra-Orthodox Jew and have a real problem with these compromises on conversion of the Western Wall. And that's a bigger mm -hmm. problem than people are being mean. Oh, 100%. It's, yeah. coming, from a, it's coming from a deep a place, a deep-seated place of, um, of belief and tradition and practice. It's not, people are, people are branding it, I think, in the... Um, Certainly, in the in the Jewish press, as mean spirited, as bigotry, um, that's that in and of itself is a huge oversimplification and is is demeaning to the ultra orthodox. I think in the in the world, and by the way, I, it's even not only in the world of ultra orthodoxy. Those who we consider religious Zionists, many many mm -hmm. hold the position also. <laughs> in fact, the Ateretikonim. Yeshiva, which is identified with the religious Zionist world, have been the ones who have been breaking into the, the, the Calitarian section and setting up a Mechitza to Daven. But 
so I don't I don't think it's actually I think they 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 I think there's no other definition for for Jews as, uh, other than a people. And that's how they see it. It's just their definition of peoplehood has to do with a very specific culture. Right. The what we call orthodox culture. And anybody who strays from that is essentially in their idol worshipers. Right. And, you know, in sort of in this biblical way of looking at the world. So that they're sort of separating themselves off from the peoplehood, you know, that they've separated themselves from being part of the people. But I kind of want to go to the question now of if you guys will let me. So how this is very difficult and complex, and it's an issue that has been going on for years and probably will continue. So it's how do painful. We and painful. Thank you. Right. Exactly. How do we how do we speak? about this to our students? How do we discuss this with, with students, especially those of us are, you know, want our students to embrace and engage and being part of, of uh, Israel and the Zionist mission? How do we Do you mean English-speaking students in diaspora or Israeli youth? I'm talking about English-speaking, our, our student body, which is English-speaking youth in or from the diaspora, since we teach them here, but especially from the diaspora. Silence. <laughs> the tough one, which is why yeah. I think we avoid it. We often avoid it, and it's not going to be avoidable as much. I mean, I think one of the things that's happened from what's going on now is the the diaspora leadership has stood up and said, "Okay, we're not avoiding this anymore." And I think that that's the big change with this past week that we it's have. Very seen Israeli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. very no, Israeli. It's, re- it's, re- it's it's refreshing. Yeah. To the point where there are some federations that have come out with statements. They're cutting off the fund Israel funding. Others who are claiming, you know, saying, you know, we should be stop canceling our start canceling our youth trips to Israel, yada yada yada. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. But the fact that people are talking this way is, I don't remember that being talked about in mainstream. Well, I, I also get nervous, and here I think I, I get nervous when I hear the language of "you're going to lose us." Yes, because mm-hmm. because that's also not Zionist. That's also religion as opposed to Zionism. In other words, well, if, if Israel doesn't play something useful for me religiously, then we just won't come. What do you mean? That's your homeland. That's the homeland of your people. Why would you not want your youth to be feel deeply connected? Fight the political fight. But don't – this language well, of you're going to lose well, us. Maybe, is they're saying, well, maybe they're saying we don't feel it's our homeland if it's not embracing us. Okay. Well, if I can't be myself in my home, then 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 it's not my homeland. That would but, be- but they've but they've reduced Jewish identity and membership in the Jewish people to tefillah, and that's it. So and that have- is like a hundred percent like a very important aspect of it, like how you practice your the the Jewish religion. But um, there are other ways of engaging with Israel and with with Am Israel. And that, like that piece, I also concerns me because that that is kind of a, it's like a, a, a real benchmark in the level of assimilation. If we ourselves are using the verbiage of of religion only to describe ourselves right. and our commitment to Israel. So, so I agree with your saying. The only difference I would say is they didn't they haven't reduced it. They've just continued it. That's how it was for you know. Quite a long time. You're saying they you too know, haven't quite a paradigm shift of Zionism. Yeah, the religious ritual was the expression of Jewish identity throughout the diaspora, um, uh, certainly in you know 
basically what you're saying is there are elements in the ultra-Orthodox and in the conservative and reform worlds that are essentially agreeing that, that Jew, Jewishness is about religion. And so Israel is a, is a platform for religious expression that we have to share, as opposed yeah. to Zionism, which says it's the homeland of the Jewish people, and therefore everybody should have a seat at the table. Yeah. Did you guys see what Michael Oren said when, when this was kind of unfolding? I did not. No. He said, um, I wrote it down, um, Israel was created as a homeland for the Jewish people, not as a homeland for the Jewish religion, but for the Jewish people, irrespective of how they practice or choose not to practice their religion. And the arrangement at the wall was the realization of that Zionist ideal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, Natan Sharansky gets so much, I, I think, deserves so much credit for the intelligence, wisdom, and sensitivity to set this up. By the way, in the... Uh, I don't remember who set up the conversion compromises. Um, that which one? No one. There was there were there were the Naman Commission, but that never got that fell apart. Yeah, the, but it, the but recent, I, I, the recent of, wasn't a compromise. This wasn't a the recent one that happened was that the Supreme Court ruled that you have to recognize Orthodox conversions not by the rabbinate in the country. Right. No, but the Naman Commission also was, you know, willing. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, never happened. Never happened. No, it fell apart. Can you give yeah. some background on the Ne'eman Commission, somebody? So again, the conversion issue came up about that Orthodox control all conversion. This was in the nineties, I think, late nineties, I think. You have to check my. You have to check the dates, but um, whenever it came up, and so Yaakov Ne'eman, an Orthodox um, economist, and at the time, you know, also a politician. Um, he was sort of put at the head of this commission to try and figure out a way that the that the liberal movements can work together with the orthodox movements. And the agreement was is that the liberal movements would have a seat at the table in teaching conversion classes, but the orthodox rabbinate would do the actual conversion and would decide who can get converted. So it was welcoming them into the seat at the table, and it 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 worked for. I mean it. it, it it started and then floundered and then was stopped. And again, as as controlled by the Orthodox. And I, I think it was, what's worrying me now is this interview that Natan Sharansky gave that's on the Times of Israel about this issue, which his main thing is, listen, we're going to solve these little issues. But the question is, if, we, if we're really just damaging um, and the damage is becoming beyond um, beyond fixable in terms of the relationship, not the actual details of the issues. Well, but what relationship is he talking about with the Israeli government and leaders of different religious movements in the diaspora or the relationship of the people I, and their homeland? I think it's much more the relationship of the people and their homeland and they're very much perceiving Israel um, as being this place that's not welcoming to them because they say that their expression of Judaism is illegitimate. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. And I think that the leaders of the diaspora movement that are meeting with him from the, you know, various streams and organizations, they're they're saying that because um, they are representing very much Americans on the most part. And in Israel, you know, we have this government system that has not allowed for that type of Jewish expression to really be felt by people. Um, what I think is really interesting is whether or not 
the American Jewish community is going to organize to really um, make a political success in getting this this overturned. I just read this morning that they might start protesting outside Israeli consulates, and the Israeli consulates, uh, or the foreign ministry is preparing the consulates of uh, how to respond. Um, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, and I, I think the American Jewish community, if this is really important to them, then they really need to use all of their political might and power um, to get this done, because the last 18 months they've been kind of sitting and waiting, and, and now's the time. Well, at the end of the day, then, this might be a very useful growing pain process so that diaspora Jews can feel a sense of ownership in the homeland and become part of a political process, even if they can't necessarily vote for prime minister. But they should, as, as, as potential citizens, as future citizens of the state of Israel, because they're members of the Jewish nation, so that might mean their political activism for things in Israel could be a very healthy thing. Absolutely. And they think they, I think they have a lot more political power than they, they think they have. Um, and also we talk about all the time or, you know, in our teachers' lounge discussions and classrooms with students, should American or diaspora Jewry have a right to vote? Or how can they get their say? Or should they even get their say? And I think now is a moment where we're getting to this point of, actually, at least for me, yes, they should get their say. And even though it's not necessarily voting for the Knesset, um, you know, there is leverage there because the state of Israel, the government of Israel, cares about its relationship with the Asper Jewry for many reasons that realm way beyond the, oh, just because we're all Jews, we need to get along. And I think you're right. That, that That's exactly a good um, place when we talk about integration, you know, national symbols. If we're claiming that these are national symbols, you know, that's an important part of it. By the way, this argument is what happened um, with the rabbinate and um, army ceremonies at the Kotel. For a while, that they were discontinued, but now they're back. I don't know all the details of that, but it was a, like a similar cultural struggle of what is the, what is the Kotel? Is it a national symbol for the nation or a religious symbol? Um, um, I mean, I, I think, think that's still a question that needs to be debated because I think they should just take yeah. the pizza down and it's not a synagogue. Correct. Well, that would, that would be great if, if none of it was yeah. used as a synagogue. That would solve the whole problem. I, I mean, I, I, that is, I absolutely believe in that. Kotel is not a synagogue. It is the center of our people. It's the cradle of our civilization. It's what we have left to, to connect the ties to our national heritage. Plenty well, of synagogues in the area. What would people do when they I got want to be there when that happens? <laughs> what would people do when they got to the hotel? That's a great point. I mean, well, we have the tech guests, the custodian for the army. Uh, thinking, so we're already like, treating it as that center, right? Um, I'm thinking but, like the individual. When we, when individual, when I like, I bring a group there, right? Right. But are most people joining a minion when they go there? You know, the Jewish tourists. They're having a moment of spiritual meditation, or connecting or to their national heritage or their identity. You can pray there, but in, you, can you can pray talk to God. not have to be in a synagogue. Yeah. Oh, so you guys are suggesting the radical idea that they would just go make a personal prayer? At individuals? Yeah. No, I, I think minyanim will still be formed, obviously. Um, but minions happen all the time. Minions happen in movie theaters, baseball stadiums. I mean, minions can happen anywhere. Judaism, we don't necessarily believe in sacred space. We believe in sacred time. So make no, space we sacred. also believe in sacred space. But we also believe in sacred space. God is, Rabbi. God is called Makom. God is called Makom. I mean, the right, Kotel right, right. is the nearest right, we right. can get to where the temple stood 
which yeah. is why we consider it important. The really important place is the temple. Right, but, it's, but the wall need... is not in itself sacred. It's just that it was a wall, right, that surrounded the mount. Um, the, 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 the temple was a sacred space. There you go. I think what happened... The, this is the retaining wall. I know, you get into this, this argument where I don't have much Jewish law background to make it versus, you know, you <laughs> big statures. But in terms of really how I feel that what I connect to the Kotel is when I'm with people connecting to my national past, which is the experience, the history, which is the time that surrounds what happened there at the Kotel. I'll tell you honestly, I've been up on the Temple Mount. And for me, people ask me, well, was that like a very spiritual experience? And for me, it was really a national experience being up there, knowing, you know, the rich history of Jews gathering. And that's the part of it that was meaningful for me. Um, you know, once you got past all the people screaming at you, but uh, for me, it was it was less spiritual and more of a national historical connection to that space too. Right. For me, it was depressing. Yeah, me too. I only went once uh, when I was on a TV. No, you guys got to get uh, a little more Rabbi Akiva in you. Rabbi Akiva, when the fox came out, felt saw the saw the positive, saw the future. Yeah. You know, here, look how far we've come instead of, you know, the glass half full. And look what happened to Rebbe Kiva. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ooh, we you are him a today heretic, he, Alan. He you continues, are, he continues you are to me. inspire us till now. I wasn't suggesting personal prayer, I just want to say. <laughs> no, I, I don't have a solution for taking down the mechitza of what comes next. But I just, it doesn't, there's no conversation yet that's not going to be a synagogue, and I don't think we're, we're so not close to that. Um, but when I saw the uh, Rosner article. I don't know if you guys saw that. He had 24 points. Excellent. Um, his point, what I thought was super excellent, which is Merrick, the diaspora community needs to organize and convince essentially the Israeli electorate or your average Israeli on why their views are important. And, and they should really be convincing us Israelis because I think most Israelis, I don't think that, and I've been I, seeing. I'll tell you why I disagree with that. It makes Why? It, because it doesn't matter if my brother cares about something and I don't. You don't have my brother doesn't have to convince me that it's important. I have to care about it because my brother cares about it, and my brother has to feel welcome in my house. It's nothing to do with convincing. Me. Right, but yeah. they don't this even awesome. see that the brother's knocking on the door. No, but this is also, I think this is like taking a step back in, in terms of how we frame this for students. This is also an excellent like discussion of the tension between when you have a diaspora community of which like we are, you know, unique in the world in terms of our relationship with Israel, as opposed to like the Irish diaspora, for instance, um, and the, the connection to say Ireland um, and things that happen, like the understanding that Israel is a sovereign democracy and they're going to make internal political decisions based on what's going on within the country. And it's very, very challenging for your average Israeli to understand, to, to look beyond because of their own individual experiences. What is the synagogue that the average Israeli doesn't go to? It's the Orthodox one. They don't, they, they don't know the American Jewish experience. They don't understand it. I don't think they um, And no, I, I agree with you. And they have their own considerations. I mean, this is something else. That this is a larger issue that play, we see playing out in a lot of different ways. Um, the I think the 
lack of understanding or lack of respect for Israel as a sovereign state um, and what that means. But it is that that tension that exists is a really interesting conversation to have um, and understanding the Israeli citizen mindset and what is important to them and how it how it impacts their day to day. Which is why I think civil engagement of the jury of Israeli society is so crucial. Um, so are you I mean, leading the Toronto protests? <laughs> I mean, I'm just here visiting my wife's family. I'll be back in Jerusalem in a week. But, um, okay, so I'll see you at the Kotel. <laughs> nice. I don't know uh, which protest I'll be joining. Uh, um, and, and vice versa, Benji. I think that that, that that may be one of our biggest, really one of the biggest um, challenges above is to try and get the diaspora and Israel citizens, people speaking. You know, right. I mean, even got, again in that Cheransky article, he mentions how ignorant Chavri Knesset, Knesset members are of American Jory, and we know American Jory's lack of understanding of Israel. Well, he pointed out, Sharansky mm-hmm. pointed out to them that 85% of APAC is reforming yeah. conservative Jews, yeah. and half the right. Knesset was like, oh, I thought they were all like anti Israel BDS supporters. <laughs> Which right. just shows the complete <laughs> lack of understanding. Even Bennett, do you see Bennett's uh, video explaining the Kotel compromise? Um, that four-minute mm-hmm. video was in the Times of Israel article. And he I called want. it the Reformim and the Datiim. Yeah. Reformi. I'm not reform. You know, God and for, I'm God religious. Be proud I'm religious and not orthodox. So, Be like... Conservative, Benj. What? Be proud not, not conservative. I'm not a conservative Jew. I'm a product of it. Post-denominational. the conservative movement. Yeah, I'm just Jewish. But, like, it's, it's, you can't just, all the egals, you can't just put them into the reform, especially the women of the wall. And many of the proud women of the wall that started it are still identified as Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so Look, Ruff Cook, even Ruff the diaspora Cook. minister who spent many years in New York with American parents does not understand the nuance of American Jewish identity. Yeah. Rob Cook wrote it's men. It's much easier to just. Sorry, go ahead, Michael. Dismiss I you. No, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Rob Cook oh. wrote many years ago that that nothing has changed in terms of the spectrum of religious and spiritual practices and understandings among the Jewish people. It's just that in the 20th century we started name. You know, we feel naming them and being unteamed by them instead of just seeing ourselves as one group. And while it may be something of an oversimplification, you know, you can picture, I always picture like Lower East Side tenements with all the different Jews living together and working together, the socialist. And, and maybe, maybe I, I, I tend to make an overly rosy picture of, of the past. But I do think that the way forward, and, 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 I, and I think this is something that Zionism really does offer us, is the shared ground where we can all meet and then have those conversations where we get to understand each other better without ever really understanding each other perfectly because I, 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 don't, I don't think we ever will. Like, we're different, and that's okay. But, but because we're different, we, we can point out things that the other wouldn't notice. And so those conversations, whether I agree with you or not, whether I really understand you, uh, I think Zionism provides us with that sort of rich background where we can, where we can really listen to each other and build uh, a stronger Jewish future if we understand that we're meeting as a people in a shared homeland, sharing that—that that is the most sacred space and time of all. I think is when we can, we can meet together and have these kinds of conversations. So maybe we have to stop talking so much about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. 
I think there's an issue in how we educate our youth, even even just in our course, Alan, that we spend uh-huh. so much time educating, but that we're not talking about enough. And, you know, we're trying to fix this, but we have to talk about how do we build a better Jewish future? That should be our conversation. Yes. I feel like we've opened up more questions, and this is really more of an appetizer conversation than a than really getting to process things fully. I think we have a lot more to do, but... I guess we'll have a lot more episodes ahead. I think a a great podcast could be is alternatives uh, of what the Kotel could be besides an Orthodox synagogue. Maybe that's too radical of a conversation. Maybe I'm going to get edited out for saying that. No, it's easy. Not a synagogue. What? It's easy. Not a synagogue. what? Just a cool open plaza. Yeah. Treat it like Masada. Yeah, Masada's not a synagogue. Oh. Interesting. Okay, so we finished the podcast. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we're done. Problem solved. Sure. I, I gotta go, guys. guys. Anyway, I have to go. Thanks, Benji. Bye. Thank you, Benji. Bye, Bye Benji. Nice to meet you. Bye. Nice meeting you. All right. Thanks, Leora. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. All right. You're welcome, Michael. Next time it's the Torah <laughs> of Bruce Springsteen. Oh man, that we should start our own podcast, Leora. Leave, uh, yes. leave, leave behind this Alan with his Grateful Dead and do a Bruce podcast. Dude, I'm from Philadelphia. Bruce Springsteen is like, you know, was mother's milk. When I graduated, I went on to the dead. All right, oh, see, I was the opposite. I was raised on the dead in Dylan and then met my true love when I was like 20, 22. Uh, and I haven't looked back. Well, yeah, but you can still enjoy Dylan. Off the dirt. No, it's true. We can't you can, well, you can't enjoy Bruce without enjoying Dylan. Exactly. exactly. All right. Well, I guess that's not really playfully anti-Semitic, so maybe that's a good note to end on. And uh, thanks a lot, guys. As always, fellow elders of Zion. That's it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>